0: I am your host, Raquel Ark, an American podcasting from Germany, and this is Listen In. Join this series of conversations with inspiring scientists, leaders, and authors about listening as a surprising superpower that is not always as easy as it seems. Believe me, I know, and I've been learning and will continue to learn, and I hope that this podcast will help you find practical ways to help others listen better. While you become better at leading people, catalyzing collaboration, transforming conflict, building trust and engagement. And I'll tell you, when really good listening happens, then the entire group, including you, can feel energized and inspired. So sit back and enjoy listening beyond what we typically think of. Welcome to the Listen In Podcast, Basil. It's a pleasure to have you here with me.
1: And thank you for inviting me. This is a a genuine pleasure, and I look forward to our conversation.
0: So I'm, I'm looking forward to this conversation, too, because when we spoke about listening beforehand, you had a really interesting perspective because you wrote a book called The Mission of a Lifetime, Lessons from the Men Who Went to the Moon, you did a lot of interviews with the different with the different people who did go to the moon, and that gave you an interesting perspective that I'm looking forward to sharing t- with our listeners. Before we get into that, though, I'd love to know what inspired you to write this book.
1: There, there are only 24 human beings who have ever left the planet and gone into deep space and gone to the moon, and only 12 human beings have walked on the moon. And I wanted to Get from them the existential lessons that that they learned. and we have read we, we know the details of the missions themselves, the the science of it, the technology of it, but no one really talked to them about what they learned in terms of the philosophy and the spirituality of it. And I wanted to to drill down into those things, how it it changed their perspective on uh, humanity. And what I discovered uh, was the power of observation and the power of listening, actually. Not something that would be obvious uh, at all, and one of the ways that these men survived was that they had extraordinary powers of observation and included in that was the power of listening. And And let's start first with observation. Most of them were test pilots, which meant that they had to maintain their composure when things started to go wrong. And what that meant was that they had to pay really close attention to the machines that they were flying. So if something was going wrong, the information that was being provided to them came through the the panel in front of them, The, the dials, altitude, and everything else that was associated with the aircraft. So they had to keep their cool and see what was going on with the machine. And that also included listening. Was there anything that was extraordinary in the sound of the aircraft? So they were they were good listeners and they were also good observers. I found that to be a, a very interesting thing. Those you know people who meditate are, are also very much uh, in the moment, and that's what they had. These people were very much in the moment. They had to be. Was
0: this part of why they were selected? Or was this part of
1: what they were trained to do? Or well, it emerged? I think, I think it was both, actually. I think that you can be trained to do that. But I think it was also something innate. It's the nature versus nurture sort of thing. And I asked Bill Anders, who took the famous earthrise photo which he thought it was. He believed it was just innate. He didn't think you could train somebody to have say courage or or to be able to listen more carefully. I don't know where I fall on that, you know, particular issue. But the fact remains that they did have extraordinary powers of observation. And so That was probably, for me, that's what what came through resoundingly. And so I found that when they were walking on the moon and they looked up at the earth, it rewired their brains. I mean, quite literally. They never quite looked at life the same way. So that when Alan Bean, for example landed back on the Earth. And the Americans always landed in the Pacific Ocean. The Russians always landed on land. For the Americans, it was fascinating because when they opened the hatch, after being in this hermetically sealed environment, right, oxygen is, is pumped in through tanks and suddenly they open up that hatch, the lush Pacific air just hitting their senses. It was just overwhelming and just bobbing up and down in the water. And the Earth is the water planet. It's, it's like 80% water. <laughs> you know, we forget that. And it just struck them. And they were surrounded by, by life and oxygen and air. They never really forgot the power of that. And they felt like they had landed in the cradle of life and paradise. So for those of them who were, even those who were, who were not religious, they, their, their sense of, of spirituality became heightened and their sense of uh, the planet becoming this one unit for humanity came through resoundingly so they didn't they didn't see it as Americans or Japanese or it was just one human race
0: one one thing i think is really interesting about what you're saying is that there was a moment this moment of another perspective, seeing things from a whole different perspective, that that shifted them to their core,
1: right? It it did. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And that it wasn't about differences. It was about not only the core in themselves, but the core of humanity.
1: Talking about uh, listening, when Armstrong and Collins and Aldrin went on their worldwide tour after they returned from the moon, there were two words that, that, struck them. They, they found that no matter where they went, the the pronouns, they fully expected to hear everyone say to them, you Americans did it. Instead, what they heard was, we did it. We humans did it, right? That's what they, they heard. They were listening it was we not you we we the world we humans did it an extraordinary moment in human history i don't know that we'd ever hear that again hope so i hope <laughs> I hope hope so, so. too. What a moment in time.
0: Yeah, what a moment in time. So you you had different interviews, different astronauts, and and you said that it was the first time that they were being asked these types of questions. And when you say these types of questions, you're talking about the existential questions and what they felt about life. And I I think that's really interesting that these are – they've lived so much – they have they'd experienced so much, but this was the first time that people were asking them such questions. I wonder if you noticed how that impacted them by asking these types of questions
1: yeah I think it was refreshing for them and when I first started to reach out to them, what they wanted to know uh, was, well, how is your book going to be any different? There have been you know hundreds, thousands of books, which have been written in the last 50 years, why should we talk to you? And the first person that I I reached out to was Bill Anders. And again, he was the one who who took the famous Earthrise photo. And he, through his archivist, asked me to write a a two-page memo explaining exactly what it was I want. And I said, look, I, I don't want to talk to you about, for the hundredth time, what what, was it, what did it feel like to be launched on a Saturn V you know, rocket and that sort of thing? And I, I want to know, what, what was the spiritual impact for you? Did it impact your, your view of, of God? And, and, and I had a, a list of questions that, that sort of ran uh, along that theme. And people were afraid to ask them that question. They didn't want to, NASA did not want them to discuss those issues. And therefore, journalists and writers didn't ask, nor did anyone want to talk or ask them about uh, the the source of, of courage and the so-called right stuff, which Tom Wolf had written about. They just didn't want to uh, get into it uh, simply because you didn't talk about courage and the right stuff. And here they were approaching their 90s. And I think they finally did want to discuss the source of courage and honor and duty. And he said, okay, I'm ready. Let's do it. That was, I think, the, the refreshing angle that had never been Addressed before that was the case uh, for all of them, and and also I, I wanted to talk to them about how it impacted their relationships uh, with their wives, and that too had not really been discussed. There had been a book that was done in which the, the wives themselves had been talked to, but not the men.
0: So you tapped into a, a level, a deep, the deep side of their experience, as well as the
1: impact over time.
0: And what were a couple of the key themes that showed up from the interviews?
1: I would say that the, that the, the key themes were, again, that many of them were, were citing Plato, Aristotle, Socrates. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> this is pretty intense. I didn't, I didn't, realize how uh, deep their knowledge uh, ran. And they were uh, citing the common good, believing in something greater than oneself. And that's not something you hear much about. It just wasn't discussed then. And it's really not discussed now. The words, if you Google the word citizen versus uh, consumer, right? Which do you think you're going to find more cited? I'm going to say consumer. <laughs> uh, absolutely, absolutely. We don't refer to ourselves much as citizens anymore. It we're we're consumers. Con- the common good? Who talks about the common good anymore? Doesn't happen. The, but for these people, it was really drilled into that generation they were mostly brought up in the Depression era. There, there was this sense of community, and I think it brought out in them a, a sense of, of purpose. Now, did that make them more observant? Did it make them more spiritual? Did it make them listen more? I don't know, but I think struggle Poverty probably made them more sensitive to the, to the human condition and therefore um, a, a little more willing to help their fellow man. So I think that probably is what made them different, probably created a little more sense of awe in them. I think it made them pay attention to nature more, Many of them grew up in in rural areas or farms there there weren't any city boys in there. It's kind of curious and so they, they 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 were more in tune with nature
0: well when you were talking about what they that they were really great observers as well as listeners, but when you described it to me and it reminded me of kind of a whole it's it's like a whole body listening, like using all of your senses from what you see yes. to what you hear to your being in tune with yourself, that calmness that comes from that, as well as connecting to the big picture. So there's a lot happening all at once that they seem to have like multi-sensory something going on. And in order to be in tune with that, that they that being calm was very important. You talked about mastering the emotions. I mean, the emotion, when you talk about that, I think, oh, there's a lot of emotion there actually in these men, but yet they were
1: emotions. <laughs> they, 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 they were. They, they, they were able to control, if there wasn't anger there and they were tested for that, they, they wanted, the psychiatrists wanted to see if they could if they could hold that back. And that was important because you had to be able to live with two other human beings in a very confined space and, and have a sense of of community and fellowship, okay? and And that was important. And the other thing before I lose the thought is their sense of time was completely altered. The way that happened was... Our sense of, of time is structured by a 24 hour day in space that is meaningless because day and night becomes completely meaningless you are in constant daylight out in space right there is <laughs> there is no 24 hour clock they would have to to keep the the shades down in the spacecraft so that they could try to sleep so one side of the of the spacecraft would be in complete sunlight and the other side in in darkness right so they would have to, to rotate the spacecraft they'd call it a barbecue roll otherwise uh, the thing would you know fry on one side and be ice cold on the other it Altered their sense of time, and you you have this just the 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 blackness of space, and so again it altered their perception of of time. That's kind of earth shattering, <laughs> and so they I, I think when they returned to Earth, they saw time in a completely different way, and therefore it altered their view of death as well.
0: Yeah, that sense of time, it's really interesting how that impacts us. And uh, that was probably also another huge uh, perspective shift once they were up in space. You talked about how they were in really close quarters. I wonder, I'm imagining how communication happened within those close quarters, how they had to interact with each other because it was a life or death situation also when it comes down to it. Did they talk about that?
1: They did. And and you have to have complete trust. Y- you, you have to trust each other. You have to trust each other's skills. They each knew that, that they were the best of the best. They knew that they could rely on each other. So it was an odd mix of skills that they needed to have. They They needed to trust the people in the control center at NASA they needed to be able to take orders and yet at the same time they needed to be independent enough to possibly not take those orders if in a particular situation they saw that that might lead to their deaths. <laughs> they had to have an independent streak and yet also be able to follow the chain of command. It's an odd mix of skills. You have to have a rebellious streak and yet be able to follow orders.
0: They know that the best of the best, instead of being in competition and letting their ego get in the way of each other, they actually use that as a way to trust each other, which would you don't see that happening as much in senior levels. It's a great example.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's an unusual human being. And I, I would argue that that the people who make it into the astronaut corps are probably the most trusting and, and probably have the greatest faith in humanity. And they are the ones who believe in peace and trying to get the world and nations to work together
0: yeah, that's nice. It is. Yeah, they're great role models. One of the other things I wanted to ask you about, there's this this cl- close space where they had to really work closely together. They had to communicate uh, they were they were leaders. They had to they had to take orders, but they also had to be ready to lead. I can imagine that the communication also had to be very clear when doing whatever they were doing or in when they had to make Decisions. I'm not sure if they talked about how they communicated with how they communicated clearly with each other to lower the risk of misinterpretation, which could cause or have a very large impact on their well, lives.
1: They, they were each responsible for certain aspects of the mission and the spacecraft. Okay so for one astronaut it would be navigation for the other in fact it would be communication with the ground okay so they were each assigned a, a specific task at each stage they had certain things that had to be done they had checklists and it was those checklists which kept them alive and they had to monitor the systems on the spacecraft every moment, every hour on the hour to make sure that everything was functioning properly. And they were in perfect sync with the flight controllers on the ground. So you have to think of it as as a symphony orchestra. Every, every player in the symphony has their their particular instrument that they're playing and the conductor was making sure that everybody is in sync and on, on time and tempo. That's probably the, the best uh, analogy that I can give you. And there really wasn't a lot of talking that needed to be done. Some of the crews were chattier than others. Interestingly, Apollo 11, which is the one that you know landed on the moon, the first guys, that was not a very chatty crew. It may have been by accident or design. Jordan was not a guy who liked to talk a lot. He knew what needed to be done. They each knew what needed to be done. The only time those guys were going to talk is if something was going wrong. Others just liked to talk. (laughs) It varied from crew to crew. I think the preference from the ground was, let's, let's keep the talking to a minimum, let's stick to the checklists, and onward.
0: They had close communication with flight controllers. Yes. Yet they used very few words. Correct. To make decisions. Yes. Or to know what to do. Did they have a specific vocabulary that they used to give them the clear direction?
1: They did. It was an engineer's vocabulary so that it would not that accessible to, say, journalists who were listening in. They did, if they, if they wanted, they, they had a switch that they could go to, which was an in-house line between the spacecraft and the flight controllers, so that if, if there was a problem, and they didn't want the world listening in then they switched to that and that's what happened with Apollo 13 which was the the one where the oxygen tanks blew and that's a fascinating transcript to read it was amazing to me because you you don't hear a lot of fear or tension In the flight commander's voice, that was Jim Lovell. That was the movie that Tom Hanks made and starred in. And he famously said, Houston, we have a problem. <laughs> it could have been oh my god or help oh, help we're in trouble it was, we're you know, die. <laughs> right. it was it was Houston we have a problem the response from the flight controllers was we copy your uh, transmission you know level and and then they start analyzing what the problem is and it's just engineers exchanging information there's no sense of panic and they very calmly go through the checklist of what's going wrong. They're reading the instrumentation. The instrumentation is telling them that the oxygen levels are going down. They then go through the checklist of what could fix the problem. Nothing that they do is fixing it. And then they instantly realize that they have to shut down the command module and move everybody over to the lunar module, which is what would land them on the moon. And there was all the flight systems were perfectly normal on that. And it had its own oxygen supply. And that's what they did. The situation that presented itself was how do we get enough electrical supply, save enough electrical supply to get them back to Earth? And it, it's quite extraordinary to to hear them, to hear their voices, and to to hear the engineers and read the exchanges going back and forth. Uh, they're as cool and calm as can be, and if there, if ever there was a manual to be issued. To the rest of the world, on how to solve a problem and and not panic. This is it. I mean, it really is. It's a real lesson in in how to listen or die. That's about the truth. <laughs> yeah, it is. I mean, if, yeah. you know, if you want a headline or a title for a book? Listen or die. That, okay. That's it. That's what that that's flight it. was. Listen or die.
0: So with you listening to that transcript, for example, and Mm -hmm. then, and just being impacted, like you're noticing um, the quality of that, as well as uh, talking to the different people that you interviewed, how did this impact you? How did this transform you (laughs) or maybe a perception of yours? Well,
1: I sat down in Lovell's living room and we talked about this. He said, what was the option? I, I couldn't just roll up in a ball and and say, Oh my God, what are we going to do? And there was there was no point in freaking out. There was no point in screaming and yelling at each other or blaming someone for for this, that, or the other, because we were just gonna wind up in the same place. We had to figure it out. He said we had to remain optimistic. And he says the single most important characteristic feature that you have to have as a, as a human being is optimism. I never had a doubt that we could you know, make it back. And then he said something which just absolutely stunned me. I, I had never heard it in my life anywhere. He said, I've come to the conclusion after 50 years, you don't go to heaven when you die. You go to heaven when you are born. And I was like, oh, my God. And and I'm not a particularly, I'm not a, I'm I'm a spiritual person. I'm I'm actually a a Buddhist. I thought, okay. And I know a lot about religion because my mother was a religious scholar. So I think I've I've read everything there is to to read about Christianity. As soon as I heard that, I, I, after the interview, I went and I Googled that, that particular phrase, and nobody had had said it, not that I could find on the internet. Then I called up the dean of the Yale Divinity School, and I said, have you heard this before? He said, no. He says, that is quite amazing. It's a complete inversion of, of the Christian Principle that you you go to heaven after after death, assuming you've you've been a good boy or girl or whatever. In any event, so that was quite an amazing thing to to hear from Lovell, and I just was really impressed uh, with the conclusions that these men came to. And he said to me, he says, "Look, every morning you need to you need to go out." pick up a blade of grass, go smell a flower, go stick your toe in the lake or water or whatever it is, and just look at this planet and remember that you are in paradise listen to the, the birds singing, listen to the wind. And and there there was this notion of, of listening. Listen to nature. So listening to the
0: paradise that we already are in, right? To the heaven that we're already in. That's a nice way to think about how we also bring our talk to like an end. <laughs> and I was thinking if you were to listen to the paradise that we're in right now or the heaven that we're in, um, what
1: would you notice? Well, I, as, as a little boy, my mother would take me to the little farmhouse that she would go to in the weekends outside of Athens. Uh, And I would listen to that, to the owl that lived in the chimney there. It was such an incredible sound, just the, the wind rustling and the, the Aegean Sea is, is an amazing thing. It's color. And the sound of the waves hitting the shore, the, the sound of the, the boats. So I was just always very sensitive to the sound of nature in Greece because I grew up in Manhattan and the sounds of Manhattan are just awful. That's not, those are not happy sounds. So the sound of nature to me versus the sounds, human sounds, which are just awful, it was a dramatic difference. So I appreciate the sound of nature. I get that. And the older that I get, the more I enjoy it. So I, I now live in a, in a very wonderful area in in North Carolina. And the birds, just when they start chirping early in the morning, I I go and I sit outside and... Patio, and I, I have my cup of coffee, and I just I just listen to the birds, I sit there with my little puppy, and and uh, it's wonderful.
0: It sounds like paradise. <laughs> you talked a lot of, about a lot of what you discovered from from writing your book, I discovered from some of the way that they listen, the way that they observe, the way their mindset, their perception of the world, the calmness that they bring even to life or death situations, and making decisions, the impact on the spiritual self and also on you. And one of the things I noticed that you wrote about is that they had techniques to deal with their fears. So maybe you can think of a little tip or a little trick that we can share with our listeners as to what they did to manage their fear that maybe can be used by people who are listening to this podcast.
1: Well, they focused on their breath. They were doing this before it became fo- popular to, to, to focus on breathing. So they focused on their breath, and they focused on, on what was directly in front of them. And in this case, it was the instrument panels, okay? So they were they were very, very focused, very moment-oriented, and they focused on their breath, and, and they were concentrated, and it was exactly what Churchill's doctor discovered when he studied pilots during World War I and what they did to control their fear. And I, I thought that was uh, quite something. And so for, for anyone you know, who's trying to manage fear, that's uh, what these gentlemen would do is to stay focused. Look at what is in front of you. Be in the moment and and focus on your breath. That's so simple. It is. So powerful. And also talk less and listen more. (laughs) (laughs) Really? I mean, these, these people, they were not like very chatty. Talk a lot. They listened. They really kind of studied you and the situation around them the room around them and they listened they took in they would take in the room they would take in the 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 trees around them the situation around them they they studied the space
0: the space mm. <laughs>
1: you know, the, the the physical space the literal space and i think the philosophical space mm.
0: And then, when they did say say something, it was pretty clear and to the point.
1: It was, and because they didn't talk so much, when they did talk, you kind of listened because you know, they really <laughs> had, they had something to say. They had
0: something to say. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for this wonderful interview and insight into what you discovered and what you learned. And what I love about everything that you've talked about is how how deep we can go. And yet it's, it's like deep and peaceful at the same time. And how, if I could look at an overall theme, being present, being in the moment, being connected with our immediate environment, as well as the bigger environment beyond us from a little bit of a flipped perception, right? From a flipped mindset, you're from a different perception. How even in a crisis moment that this
1: pulls us through.
0: So thank you so much. It has been a pleasure, Basil.
1: Likewise, Raquel. Thank you. And I, I apologize for my ums and os and long, <laughs> They're perfect. long, long pauses. I takes a while for me to to think these days. (laughs) Anyway. Well, if
0: people want to buy your book or get in contact with you, how would they do
1: that? All they have to do is just go to uh, Amazon and Google uh, the mission of a lifetime lessons from the men who went to the moon, or I have a very strange name, but it's very easy to remember. (laughs) I love your name. (laughs) Uh, Hero, H-E-R-O, not that I am one. Basil, B-A-S-I-L, or basil as I pronounce it, like the spice, so... Yeah.
0: And we'll put the link in the notes. And well,
1: thank you so much. Have a nice day. <laughs> and you too. Thanks so much.
0: I am your host, Raquel Arc from Listening Alchemy. And I hope you are inspired by this episode of Listen In and find one person today to practice your listening superpower. Please subscribe and like this podcast and share it with others so we can catalyze a listening movement together. A big thank you to Ivo Timan for producing the music and Cecilia Mercado for getting this podcast set up. Find more information at www.listeningalchemy.com. Enjoy listening in.